Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're really glad that you've listened in today. I want to say a special thanks at the beginning here to Ed Hackey for producing the show and to Rebecca Terhune for all her help with marketing and media. Also, could I ask that wherever you listen into this podcast, you give us a ratings, whether it's on iTunes or another platform. That's really helpful to us. Also, if you're in the habit of tipping when you go to a restaurant or maybe when you stay at a hotel, um, I was thinking that maybe an idea would be to, instead of money, give someone a little slip of paper with our web address on script.study. And there's, you know, there's that saying where if you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day. And if you teach them to, to fish, then you feed them for life. And I see that's kind of the analogy here where in uh, when you tip someone, you feed them for a day. And what good is that? They're going to get hungry again. Whereas if you teach them to fish, if you give them the link to the podcast, then you're sustaining them long term. And, you know, it, why throw someone just a little fish, you know, maybe a goldfish or something that doesn't have a lot of meat on it, can't really feed them well when you could give them a link to the OnScript podcast. So just think about that. Consider it. I'm not trying to be cheap. I'm trying to actually help people long term. Okay, today we have as our special guest, Dr. Carmen Imes, who is going to be talking about her book, Bearing God's Name. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to OnScript. I'm here today with Dr. Carmen Imes, who is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Alberta, Canada. She received her PhD at Wheaton College after serving on the mission field in the Philippines with her family for two and a half years. She's the author of Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, a reexamination of the name command in the Decalogue, and a more popular level version of that book in Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And we're going to be talking about that today. And she's uh, writing and finishing up a project called Reading the Psalms with Augustine and Friends. And that's going to be coming out this year. Is that right? Yep. It should be in a few months. Okay. And who are the friends? Oh, wow. Lots of people. I think I have 24 different um, ancient contributors who are each giving us their their take on a particular psalm. So there's a lot of John Calvin. Um, I unearthed a few women's voices, Gertrude the Great, uh, Katharina Schutzel, um, several several women as well. And although Carmen enjoys, this is what your your uh, website blurb said. Although you enjoy hanging out with other academic nerds at conferences, um, your passion is to help bring the Bible to life for lay people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Carmen, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, yeah, really enjoyed your book, and I think it's a, a fantastic contribution. And I, I wanted to just get right to it and ask about your subtitle, uh, "Why Sinai." still matters. So what's your elevator pitch for why Sinai still matters for the church? Yeah, I would say that if we want to understand truly who we are, so what our identity is and what our vocation is in the world, we have to go back to Sinai because Sinai is where it all starts for the people of God in covenant with Yahweh. Uh, And if we miss that, if we unhitch, say, from the Old Testament, we miss out on... To coin a term. We miss out on who we are and what we're here to do. Oh, fantastic. So 
Um, so for a lot of Christians, I'd say, hey, you should begin with Christ. You shouldn't go back to Sinai. What, what would you say is the reason why we need to kind of go back all the way to Sinai? Um, and w- what is it about Sinai that's so foundational to our identity? Yeah, so Sinai is where the the people of Israel are made into a nation and where they, they discover who Yahweh is and what his character is, and and they discover how they're supposed to be in the world. And so if we start with Christ and miss that that story that leads up to Christ, I don't think we can actually understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, you know, without that story. I think understanding the contours of what happened at Sinai helps the New Testament come to life. Yeah. And so how did you get drawn to Sinai in the first place? So, you know, a lot of Christians, they're kind of running in the other direction away from Sinai, or they might say, hey, why do you need to focus on Mount Sinai when you have the Sermon on the Mount as our kind of foundational ethic where we derive our sense of identity from? So how, how did you get drawn into that in the first place? Yeah, it's um, I kind of cheated. So um, when I wanted to study at Wheaton College at Wheaton, when you apply to the PhD program, you apply to work with a particular supervisor and you apply with a topic in mind. So I knew I wanted to work with Dan Block and I figured he was in a better position than I was to, to tell me what work still needed to be done. I imagined working in the prophets. I really love Hebrew poetry, and I've always loved the prophets. Um, but he, I, I just asked him, hey, you're, you're getting cl- fairly close to retirement. Do you have any topics you still feel like you really want to supervise? And he, and he gave me a list. He was really generous. I figured the worst he could say is no. And he gave me a list, and on the list was the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And he said, this has been um, largely, grossly misunderstood, and I think it needs a full reexamination. And he had written a short article on it and, and given a sermon on the topic at the IBR worship service at the annual meeting several years back. And, and so he sent me the script to that, and I fell in love with the idea. I said, this is captivating. So although I didn't set out to become a scholar of biblical law, I found that there was way more going on than what we usually see at Sinai. And I and I thought, this is what I'd like to help the church discover. Mm. And, and so, so you worked with Dan Block on your PhD. And uh, do you want to talk about him briefly? Because I I've met him before and, and think really highly of him, but maybe talk a little bit about his work and, and what it is about him that you found to be uh, contagious or attractive about uh, studying yeah. the Bible. Uh, Dr. Block is an amazing man. He's a scholar's scholar. He moves around um, at SBL and engages with the highest level of scholarship with people all across the spectrum. Um, his commentaries, he has major commentaries out on Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, Judges and Ruth. Uh, he's done a lot of work in in Deuteronomy in recent years, and and in Ezekiel previous to that. So he kind of moves in both of those circles. And what really impresses me about him, what impressed me at the time that I applied, is that although he's a scholar's scholar and engages so well in the academy, he also is very pastoral and and has a heart for the church, and he has a very vibrant faith in God. And so to him, it's not just an academic exercise. It's supposed to be life transforming. And when he looks at the Old Testament, he doesn't see anything boring. He, he, it's 
it's all alive for him. It's all full of the grace of God, and it's all profound, and, and he teaches it with passion. And I knew that you become like the person you study with to some extent. And I looked around, you know, from my perspective as a master's student, I didn't know a lot of scholars yet at that time, but those that I could see, I felt like of all of them, Dan Block was the one I wanted to be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. That's kind of the way that in Germany, people talk about their relationship with their supervisor, usually, that it's, um, and even the idea of asking what topics they had that they could supervise, there's a sense, I, f- I feel like in sometimes in the American system, there's an emphasis on the doctoral student's individual creativity, and um, which certainly is in play as well in the German system. But But in Germany, there's a strong sense of sort of you're choosing someone to work with so that you can you can take on board their way of looking at things and then do your own work within that and that 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 sounds so it's not a loss of creativity but it but it's but you're not going back to the you can't ever go back to just a blank slate you have to start somewhere and so you're saying i want to start with this person yeah i just didn't feel like i had the vantage point as a as a masters student to know the field well enough to make a decision that would have such an impact over my future direction. I felt like he was in a much better place to know that. So yeah, I I did bring my whole self to this project and it did take on, it it took me in some directions that I think even Dr. Block didn't anticipate. Um, But he felt like, you know, he had seen something in this command that needed further exploration and somebody needed to do the full job of it and just really look at it from every angle. So that's what I got to do. Yeah. So what does it mean to not or what what is the prohibition on taking God's name in vain mean, according to your analysis? So, um, you know, sometimes I've heard this described as not um, you know, invoking God's name in vows uh, and, and doing so flippantly or not swearing or something like that. So how do you understand yeah, so- it? As I investigated this command, I, I didn't find any evidence that we should be reading it as a speech-related command, or at least not compelling evidence that this has anything to do with speaking the name of God. Rather, uh, the Hebrew reads, you shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And so most translators, I think, have come to that phrase and said, well, that doesn't make sense because we don't carry names. So this must be an idiom or figure of speech for something else. And then they go hunting for parallels and they find passages that make them think, oh, this must be about magic or this must be about oath taking or some kind of saying or speaking God's name. But in fact, in the near context to this command is the instructions for making the high priestly garments. And the same phrase, lift up or carry the names, is used to describe what the high priest is doing as he goes about the tabernacle doing his thing. So he has on his um, chest a special apron with that's studded with 12 precious stones. Each one is engraved with the name of one of the 12 tribes, and it says that he carries their names before Yahweh. And so I don't think we need to be looking far afield to figure out what the phrase carry, you know, you shall not carry Yahweh's name means. I think the answer is right there at Sinai, that that the, the high priest then is like a visual model 
of what Israel is called to be and do, that is to represent, just as the high priest represents the 12 tribes before Yahweh, so so the whole nation represents Yahweh among the, the nations by carrying his name. When, when you explained that, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it just, it had a kind of immediate resonance. And so then as you, as you looked into that further, what, what's your sense of what it means then to bear the name before the nations? What, what all does that yeah, involve? Yeah, well, it involves all the rest of the laws at Sinai, all these things that we would rather not think about and leave behind because it seems like, um, I, I think our general impression of the law at Sinai is that the Israelites had to earn God's favor and we can do away with that because we have grace in Jesus Christ. Um, and he it's his righteousness that we're resting on, so we don't need the law. But the law was actually never a, mean, a means to earn God's favor. The law was, was given to them after they were redeemed from Egypt. The, the law is given to them as a way of saying, here's how to live now that you're my people, so that you can demonstrate my character to a watching world. So by living differently... Other people can see what Yahweh is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it has a, a strong ethical component to it, um, and and a religious component as well. So, um, I, I guess one one question I have with sort of bearing the name being related to all the laws. So I can I can see how with the first and second commands, depending on how you line that up, um, you know the prohibition on worshiping other gods and not making images. You kind of know when you're breaking that or keeping it, um, whereas bearing the name, where are the boundaries for that? How do you know when you're successfully bearing it or not? So, uh, what's your sense of of how they would have understood the boundaries of that law, or is it, or or is that a misconstrual of how we should think about the law? Yeah, in the first no, place? I think that's a, a great question. The way that I count the Ten Commandments, there's disagreements about how to count them, as you know. Um, it, it's not as easy as it seems like it should be. Um, But the way that I count them, the first command is not to have other gods, which includes within it not making idols. So that's number one. Number two is not misrepresenting Yahweh by by bearing his name in vain. So these two together become like the head of the rest of the commands, and they echo the covenant formula, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so, so that's why I think we can have a command so broad as this one, where it seems like, yeah, it's a heading for the rest of the laws, the, west, the rest of the instructions. So if, if we look at all of the places in the Torah where it says, don't do such and such because this will profane my name, we find a really wide range of activities that will profane the name, that will take this name that they're supposed to be carrying as holy and will bring it into disrepute. So I think that that should be a clue that if we're reading it just as a certain way of speaking the name, we've gone too narrow because, because there are lots of things they do that profane the name. Right. So it has broad application within the Torah itself and then echoing on throughout the Old Testament. Um, and, and so your, your book, Bearing God's Name, that makes sense, the title, Bearing the Name, instead of not taking in vain or something like that. Um, y- your book was essentially a biblical theology of the concept bear- of bearing God's name. So what are some of the ways that you um, saw the theme of bearing the divine name echoing throughout the Old Testament and on into the New. What were some, some of the highlights of, of that 
that you yeah. You at share. one point during my doctoral work, I decided I should read through the entire Bible with this theme in mind and see where else it shows up, and I found it in almost every book of the canon. It was really exciting, and in in many of these places, these are like verses that we say or hear pretty often, but we probably don't stop to think about it. So, I mean, think of a passage like Psalm twenty three, which is so familiar. And it says, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Do we ever stop to... Yeah, we just glide right over that. that. So why is my walking in the right path? How does that have anything to do with his name? Well, it doesn't unless I bear his name. If I am his representative and he's basically stamped me with his name so people know that I belong to him, then then when I walk in the right path, it enhances his reputation. And if I go off the rails, to switch metaphors, then <laughs> then people are going to look at me and they might have a wrong impression of what he's like. Uh, another one, another really... Um, familiar passage is from Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Well, what does it mean my people are called by my name? Are they called Yahweh? Well, no. I think a better translation is, if my people over whom my name has been proclaimed will will humble themselves and pray. So there's there's a sense in which Yahweh has proclaimed his name over the people. It's an act of verbal branding saying you are mine. And if those people, the ones who belong to him, humble themselves and pray, then he'll hear because they're his people. Yeah, so there's something about the idea that God's reputation is bound up with his people. And yeah, and and Moses can then appeal to that when the people have blown it at Mount Sinai and, um, as Walter Marbley says, committed adultery on the wedding night. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then he, uh, he says, well, hey, what are the nations going to think? So he's appealing to Yahweh's reputation, which is tied up with this people. Another one of my favorite passages is Ezekiel chapter 36, where um, it, it's describing the aftermath of the exile that the Israelites are in, it, in exile and what is the implication or or what is the negative outcome of them being in exile and it's it's they defiled Yahweh's name and it says uh, verse 20 wherever they went among the nations they profaned my holy name how for it was said of them these are Yahweh's people and yet they had to leave his land so so Yahweh announces that he's going to repatriate the people. He's going to bring them back to the land, not because they've repented, not because they're righteous, not because they deserve it, but because his reputation's on the line. And when they go into exile, the nations looking on naturally conclude Yahweh must not be that powerful of a God. He can't even protect his own people. So Marduk must be more powerful or Ishtar must be more powerful. Yeah. So so God acting in God's own self-interest yes. is beneficial yes. to the people. Exactly. He says... Yeah, yeah that's that's interesting because... Oh, oh I, sorry, go ahead. I was ahead. just going to read the next verse, verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Um, so, he, so he says in the following verses that he's going to bring them back. Um, and it's all for the sake of his name. And I had never noticed that before, before I did this study. 
Yeah, you start looking at the Bible through that lens, and then you begin to see it all over the place. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me of, I, I think it might have been Walter Brueggemann who was talking about Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and he he would des- he described it as, um, I think he called it like some kind of division within God's own heart where he he has to either show mercy toward the people or act in judgment and and that there was some kind of conflict where he he was either kind of maintaining his own justice or showing mercy to the people. And it always struck me that that division, if I'm remembering this correctly, <laughs> that that division was was false, that this idea that either he's acting in the interest of the people or um, acting in his own interests. But if if their name is called, if Yahweh's name is called over the people or if they bear his name, then acting in his own interest is mm-hmm. good for the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so inevitably when I talk about this with um, church audiences, somebody will ask afterwards, so do you think this has any connection to the book of Revelation where John sees a vision and in his vision, Yahweh's name is written on the foreheads of people? It's like, yes, yes, I I think this is exactly what's going on. In John's vision, what's been invisible all these years whether you are alleg- you're showing allegiance to Yahweh or whether your allegiance is to this, the kingdoms of this world, that allegiance is invisible until John's vision, and then he can see the tattoos that people actually have. And so I totally think it's connected. Yeah, and you, you drew contrast there with that in the Mark of mm-hmm. the Beast as well, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, so there, everybody wears a tattoo. You're, you're either allegiant to the true king or to a false king. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. To the to beast. The beast. Um, which is obviously barcodes. <laughs> Q, probably QR codes now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that segula is your favorite word. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what that word means and why it's sure. your favorite word. Yeah. So this, this also goes back to Dan Block because I was in conversations with him about the program at Wheaton while I was a master's student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I was getting ready to write my master's thesis, and I wanted a topic that would lead me, that would sort of begin work on a dissertation or that could go towards a dissertation. So I asked, since he had been so generous, I asked Dan Block, what should I write my master's thesis on? And he said, oh, you got to do Segala. And so, so he, he's the one who pointed me back to this word. So it occurs in the, for the first time in Exodus 19, verses uh, 4 through 6. You, your, this, this is right as the Israelites have arrived at Sinai, the first announcement from God through Moses. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So the word segala is behind that phrase treasured possession in English. And what sounds to us like a like a warm fuzzy kind of word like oh he likes them mm-hmm. he's saying how what, what a, a treasure. treasure you're so sweet you know <laughs> you're my peach or whatever it's it's that's that was my first impression but as i dug into this word i discovered no this is actually a technical term that's used not just in the bible but um, the cognate words in akkadian and ugaritic are used in treaty contexts 
to indicate a, a special treaty partner who has representative status. So you have a great king might have a, a t- might have treaties with a number of lesser kings or princes in the region, and that great king chooses one to be his segala, and that's the the one he can really trust to be loyal and to represent his in- interests if he's away. Um, so it's actually not just a, a status of being loved, but it's a it's a vocation. It's a job to do. So already before we get any of the laws, before we even get the command not to bear, bear Yahweh's name in vain, we have the, this indication that their identity is Yahweh's special treasured covenant partner. And, that, and we already have the sense, if we know that word and understand how it works, that they are going to represent him. Yeah. So, so the, the, the idea of a special status marked by this term... Um, do you see any connections, this is jumping ahead quite a bit, but to to um, the reference to the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John? Um, because I, I've heard some people argue that that's not just saying like, oh, God, you know, Jesus had his favorite or, 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 or that, um, you know, they were especially close pals, but but rather there's some kind of designated status there, a vocation attached to that. Some people have even said like a designated biographer oh, wow. or something along those lines. But I, I didn't know if you'd I ever I love that idea. I've connected not those. connected those. Um, I, that's something to think about. I, I could see that being the case because we think of love just in terms of affection. But all the way through the Old Testament or the First Testament, love is a covenant term. It, it has to do with loyalty more than it does emotion. So I yeah. can see that. I almost thought you were going to say love is a verb. <laughs> I um, can say that. I am old enough to say that and know what you're yeah, referring well, to. <laughs> um, I wonder if we could switch gears and do a speed sure. round. Okay. So um, what's a top writing tip for those who are interested in getting into popular level mm-hmm. writing like you've mm-hmm. done? Imagine someone who you're writing for. For me, uh, it was a guy named Earl who attended our church in Oregon City before we moved to Canada. And Earl was part of my adult Sunday school class, and he admitted to me that he had never read a book cover to cover with the exception of a welding manual. He was a, he was a welding teacher for the local high school until he retired. And I thought, if I could write a book that Earl would read, then that would be a major win. Oh, that's fantastic. And um, to which, did you respond to him and say, I've never read a welding manual cover <laughs> to cover? That would have been a really great thing to admit, because I haven't. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think if Earl's going to read yeah. your book, you should read yeah, a welding manual. Yeah, if he manual. writes one, I'll it's read only it. fair. <laughs> so as an, as an author, you know that uh, endorsements are a big, big part of getting your work out there. Um, and I, I feel that one of the services we can offer here on Script is what I call random endorsements. And um, to surprise and delight. So I ran a search on Amazon.co.uk and on, on religion to see what the first thing that came up was. And the first hit was the religion men's praying skeleton t-shirt. So if you had to write an endorsement for it, what, what might you say? So it's it's the religion men's praying skeleton T-shirt. <laughs> I would say save this one for yard work day. Okay, that's good. Um, maybe you can do a, a review on Amazon. 
Um, I, lo- I, I did a little research on Prairie College and found out that you have an aviation program. And do you get to fly in small planes then as faculty? Not yet. So our students do a test flight called the Min-Max where they have to do a flight with the plane as empty as possible, and then they have to load it up with as much weight as possible and and do the same flight again so they can sort of feel how the aircraft responds differently. So last year, I did have an opportunity to be on that max flight. I wasn't sure whether to be flattered that the student chose me or to be worried that he thought I weighed too much. <laughs> but anyway... Um, yeah, that could be taken <laughs> quite a few could be taken wrong. But anyway, then it got rescheduled and I couldn't go. But one of these days, I'll do it. And they do like you know, sharp turns and crazy stalls in the air and stuff. Oh, wow. So, oh, oh my goodness, with with, with it, it fully, fully loaded, loaded with, with professors. <laughs> oh, so so this is this is like a brand new yep. pilot, and going to do stalls yep. in the air, and you wanted to go on this. I flight. did. I trusted Fantastic. this student. Uh, yeah, and you're gonna. Are you gonna maybe get a pilot's nope. license? It's too expensive. <laughs> okay, no plans there. Um, I I also did research on where you're mm-hmm. located. And I see that Prairie College is located near Ghost Pine Creek. So it's it's a bit to the east of you. I've not um, been there. According to Wikipedia, it's named after an old Indian, or I should say First Nations ghost le- legend. Okay. Do, do you know I the legend? This is the first I've heard of it. This, this is only like 10 miles wow. away. So you, you might want to know this. Um, so according to the Geographic Board of Canada, published in 1928... Ghost Pine Lake and Creek is related to a First Nations belief that the area was haunted by a headless horseman since the since a, a battle was fought at the south end of the lake. And many traces of the battle has been have been found by early settlers. So um yeah, so the headless horseman is the, the backdrop. I guess I guess he still rides around haunting the area after this battle. You know, it's just occurred to me that I have heard of Pine Lake many times. And I think uh, I've even been there, th- but probably because I'm on a conservative Christian college campus, they just drop the ghost. Mm, that could be. Yeah, or it's or it's local, you know, yeah, shorthand. could be. Could that could be. be as well. So if you, I thought you were going to say you, you have, now that I mentioned, you have seen a headless horseman riding <laughs> <Nope>. around. Um, <clears throat> but if you do, okay. you know why. Thank you for filling me in. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Uh I don't know if this is an idea in biblical studies or just in the broader church, but this idea that we go to heaven when we die, that that idea needs to die. Maybe temporarily, but I'm looking forward to the new creation. And it's crazy how how deeply rooted we are in this idea that we're, we have this disembodied existence to look forward to on the clouds and students Students talk about going to heaven all the time, and I and I say, I'm sorry to break it to you, but I don't think you'll be there. I, I have to always say it to my kids, and they they've grown up with me, and and um, and it still seeps in somehow, and uh, it's it's a very dominant paradigm. I thought you were going to say, as an Old Testament scholar, we go to Sheol when we die. You're, you're going to make a case for that. Um, <clears throat> uh, do you have a favorite novel? The first one that came to mind is the the Mitford series by Jan Karen, just for like light and and fun reading. But I I do love to read, and usually my choice genre is if I'm not reading in biblical studies is middle grade novels. So I have lots of middle grade novels that I love. Well, I'm saying okay, but what's a middle like, grade like novel? Like uh, you know, a kid 
between the ages of 10 and 13 might read. So uh, yeah. I, I love cool. it because there's some really deep themes that come through, but there's usually not gratuitous sex and violence. You know, like it's tastefully told. So, um, yeah, one of my favorite recent ones is is called The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. It's, ama- it's an amazing story. Okay, I'll have to check it out. And do you have a favorite musician? Oh, Stephen Curtis Chapman was my probably my favorite growing up, and I find his songs to be really deep. Um, I don't have a lot of music time in my life right now, but if I'm writing and I need to be motivated, I listen to the soundtrack for How to Train Your Dragon. It's very <laughs> empowering. That's great. <laughs> All right, you're in a restaurant, and in walks a penguin wearing a sombrero. What does he say? Hola. <laughs> okay. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Maria is not a problem to be solved. Maria needs to be loved and embraced for who all of who she is. Favorite outdoors spot in the U.S. or Canada? Hmm. Or Mexico? Well, if you, ma- if you made it broader than that and we did the whole world, then I would say the Ta'al Volcano in the Philippines, which just erupted. And spewed ash oh, all wow. over everything. So my favorite spot in the world what a favorite just choice. like got kind of ruined. But I love living near Banff and Jasper National Parks in Canada. Just beautiful. Yeah, you are you are very fortunate to be. I was looking at that when I was looking at the map for yeah, Ghost Pine yeah. Creek um, and Lake. Uh, but you didn't mention those as your favorite spots. But now they will be. Um, what are some ways that so oh, so so you did you grow up? In the U.S., is that I what, did. what I remember you writing in your book? Yep. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Do you have a favorite restaurant there? In Denver. That's or favorite a, kind of food? That's a long time ago. Um, okay, so so maybe since Denver, where did you, <laughs> you where, where'd you go after Denver? Oh, man. So Danny and I have been married for 21 years, and we've moved 14 times. So you oh, ask you ask me my favorite food, and I'm like, right. oh, what country are we in? What state are we in? Okay, so so um, when when I say favorite restaurant, what comes to mind? Um, Taco Bell for if I'm like if we're like on a road trip and we need to stop, that's it's going to be Taco Bell because it's fast and cheap, and I like the food. But if it's like a nicer place, probably something Indian. I love Indian food. So, I mean, going back to the penguin with sombrero, yeah. um, see, there's a, there's a thematic connection there. Yeah. Um, and what are some ways that you've learned from failure? Oh. You know, there was a time in writing my dissertation that I came to a brick wall and felt, felt like a failure. And I had given everything I had to this project. I had poured the best of my brain into it. And I turned in the defense draft and was told, it's not ready to defend. You need more time. And I was so sure that I was on the verge of graduation that my parents already had plane tickets to come see me graduate. And I was already in the last stages of the interview process for a tenure track position. And I had to shut all that down and go back to the drawing board. And it was really hard because I felt like I had already given everything I had to this and I didn't have any more to give. But given enough time, um, I was able to discover, I, was, I, I had been on such a 
kind of a freight train trying to finish my doctoral work and trying to block out distraction, that it was kind of a white-knuckled dissertation, and it lacked it lacked curiosity and exploration that I needed I needed to look more broadly. And so when I went back to the project, I took a little time off. When I went back to it and started, you know, slogging through more research, I found actually that it was it became fun again. This project that I thought I didn't have any more to give to became fun. And I started making new discoveries and new life came back into the project. So it was two years after that that failure moment that I actually defended. And it was such a joyful dissertation defense. It was so much fun. Uh, it was a red letter day. And I and I I didn't think I had it in me. So if I've learned something about failure, it's that failure is temporary. And if you keep if you keep pushing to learn and grow, that there's more for you. You can do more than you think you can. Yeah, that's such a great answer. Um, so you were missionary uh, missionary in the Philippines mm-hmm. for two and a half years. Um, what do you miss about living there? Mangoes. Really, mangoes. really good oh. mangoes. Yes, they're, they're the smaller ones, aren't they? Um, they're not necessarily the, small. The, the yellow yeah, ones? Yeah, they're really yellow. So, yeah, the, I guess there's these really big sort of greenish, reddish ones that come from Mexico that are all sort of um, uh, they have like f- they're fibery, but the ones yeah in, they can get stringy. Yeah, the ones in the Philippines are like custard. I mean, you just like spoon it out, and it's smooth and so delicious. Yeah, I do like those. Um, and I bet they were pretty cheap there. They were, yeah. Uh, how did living there change you? Mm. We we moved to the Philippines thinking that we had a lot to offer the world, and we it was a very uh, humbling time for us as we realized that. The skills that we brought weren't necessarily the skills that were needed. And so my husband came to be our team administrator, and we had a really small team that decided they didn't need to grow, and so they didn't really need an administrator. And I went to do Muslim outreach, and I was I was working among um, getting to know, befriending Muslim street vendors, and I came equipped with a Bible education and an inductive Bible study method, and I knew how to whip out my colored pencils and mark up the text and show the author's intent. And and these new friends of mine were primary oral learners. They didn't read. They didn't have pencils in their houses, and they didn't care what I knew. And I think I realized pretty quickly that I I didn't have a marketable skill in that context, and I felt I felt really humbled by that. It was an important season. Mm, that's good. Um, yeah. Uh, last question on a serious note. Knock, knock. Who's there? Spell. Spell who? W-H-O. All right. All right. There um, we have it. So you had a, um, an interesting discussion about the, the tablets that Moses carried down the mountain. And uh, they turns out they weren't 40 pounds each with... Half the five of the commands on one and five on the other. What do you think? What do you think uh, was on these two tablets? Yeah, paint a picture for us. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it worked out, except that they that he had two tablets and they were written on front and back, and we know that they fit inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was I think a cubit 
by a cubit and a half or something like that. It's it's small enough that Carlton Heston's big tablets wouldn't have fit in them. Um, so it, what we learn about these tablets by looking at um, comparable situations in the ancient Near East is that treaties typically had two tablets and that the two stone tablets are not, we don't have two because the stuff didn't all fit on one, but because we need duplicate copies. So Moses, if this is fitting with ancient Near Eastern convention, which I think it is, Moses is coming down from the mountain with two tablets, um, which are two duplicate copies of the 10 words, the 10 commandments, in order to indicate to his people that, that they were entering into a treaty or a covenant with Yahweh. And now normally... In the ancient world, they would put one copy in each party's temple so that the god of that party can oversee the faithfulness of the other and make sure that everybody's holding up their end of the bargain. In the case of Israel, there's only one temple, and so both copies are put in the most holy place. And I think that it's because Yahweh is guaranteeing their faithfulness but he's also guaranteeing his own faithfulness to mm. the covenant. Mm. So this is sort of like the, um, like he's he's taking on both sides of or responsibility for both sides of the covenant relationship. Yep, yeah. I think so. Um, and when you talk about um, the the idea that the law still matters for Christians, um, you know, broadly speaking, I I can understand Christians getting on board with the idea that we need to bear the name of Yahweh before a world that's looking for a different way to live and be. Um, when you start drilling down into some of the details of the laws, it gets more difficult maybe to transfer across. So, um, what's how do you handle some of the continuity, discontinuity issues when it comes to taking on board the Old Testament law for us today? Do we, do we kind of take some and leave some, or what? how do we think about relevance? Yeah, it's a great question, an important question, and it's hard work to answer it. It takes it takes um, careful deliberation by each Christian community in each age of the church. So, so yes, there are things that we don't live out in the same way that that they lived them out in Old Testament times because our cultural context has changed, but also because because Christ's death and resurrection has changed the dynamic. We don't have a temple anymore. We're the temple. And so laws that relate to tabernacle worship, sacrifice, ritual purity no longer apply in the same ways. They do teach us about God's character. They, they teach us about proper order, um, proper... They do teach us, for example, e- even if we're not following all the all of the tabernacle instructions, we can see that it matters to God that He's worshipped properly. That this is not a freestyle event, and so I think that I think we can take that forward. Um, but when it comes to other laws that aren't related to temple or ritual purity, I think we need to do the hard work of thinking about our cultural situation and how we might express the same principles in our context. So one kind of fun example emerged in our class discussion recently um, as I was teaching the Torah. We talked about, so, so I'm in a rural context. Our little town of 3,000 is surrounded by wheat fields and canola fields. So I actually have a lot of students who are farmers who come from farm families. Now, I can read some of the laws about agriculture and say, well, can't do that one. I'm not a farmer. Um, but some of them can 
you know, they, they can identify more closely with it. So one example that came up in class is the command not to reap to the edges of your field because you're supposed to leave that for the foreigner and the widow and the fatherless. Well, I asked the farmers in the room, so do you do this? Like, do you, do you leave some, some grain at the edge of your field so that these people can come and glean? And they're like, uh, no. I said, well, why not? You're farmers, so this should apply to you. And they're like, well, because nobody would come and do that. Like, they'd be trespassing. That doesn't actually work in our culture. So I said, okay, let's think together then about how could we live out the spirit of this command in our context. And somebody said, oh, I know. You could reap your whole harvest, and then you could donate some of the produce to a local food bank. And I said, okay. Um, and, and before I could even reflect on that, somebody else's hand shot up and said, no, that's not the same thing. Because if you are not reaping to the edges of your field, then the the widows, I mean, think of the story of Ruth. Ruth is both fatherless and a widow when she arrives, you know, penniless with her mother-in-law in Bethlehem, and she's allowed to glean behind Boaz's workers, this is not a handout to her. She's, she's not lining up and getting something for free. She's, she has the dignity of a day's work. And she's going home with, she's going home with food. So I said, okay, if, if a food bank is not giving someone the dignity of work, how might we do this differently? So we began to think together about how you might farm in a way that provides jobs for people who would have a hard time being employed otherwise. So maybe, maybe you've got some people who've just been released from prison and they can't pass a background check. And so they're marginalized. How are they going to get a job anywhere? Could you give them work on your farm? Or maybe you've got someone with a chronic illness, either a physical illness or a mental illness, that makes their work performance spottier than usual. They're not always able to come to work. Could you provide a job for someone who who can't always be there? Could you be the kind of employer that has flexibility for people who are sometimes marginalized and don't have access to good labor. And so it was a really cool discussion. And then I said, well, how about if you don't have a farm at all? Like, what if you own the local Dollar Tree? Then what? And so then we talked about how we could be business owners who lean into this idea of not being greedy for every penny, but providing labor for people who might have a hard time finding work otherwise. Oh, it was really cool. That's a great example. And and I, and I like the idea of, of, of taking... Taking a law, starting with those points of contact, cultural contact, you know, with the farming, and then broadening out from there to ways that the gleaning laws have implications for all of us. Um, so you, you talked in your book, too, about reading the Old Testament with kids, and you mentioned your son, Easton, is it? Who, um, you, who enjoyed some of the ritual laws in Leviticus, um, which I thought was great. And, and it's interesting because I've, I've read through the Old Testament with my son, who's now 10, and one of the surprises for me was the fact that he likes parts of the Old Testament that I'm usually told kids aren't going to connect with as well. I, I, you know, usually the idea is kids love stories, so just read stories to them. But he loved the genealogies. He just, he found the, the sound of the names interesting. And he was fascinated by the laws because he wants to know, what did they get in trouble for? You know, what are the boundaries? You know, so he, he was curious about what would get you in trouble with God or with, with your neighbor. So, um, 
so what what are some some ways that you think um, maybe advice that you have for people reading the Old Testament with kids? Because there are some things that um, I'll be honest, like I edited part of uh, Ezekiel. Um, yeah, we we so, skipped we skipped Song of Songs and Ezekiel mm. uh, when I didn't we skip did Song our of songs. <laughs> yeah. So, so okay. So yeah, it it, it is interesting um, because there are definitely adult themes in the Bible, and yet and yet our kids are getting exposed to a lot of adult themes in the world around them. So I think we need to be. I think there's a danger in being maybe too prudish in the way that we read the Bible with our kids so that they think the Bible doesn't address some of these issues, even though they see it being addressed on Netflix or YouTube or or in conversations with friends. But I also think there's a way of sometimes rephrasing it as we go or editing out chapters that they're not ready for yet. That would be too disturbing for them and they wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Um, I remember getting to the end of the book of Judges. So Easton was seven and eight years old when we were doing our Bible read-through. We were using videos from the Bible Project. So we'd watch the video, and then we would listen through the the Bible being read to us on Bible Gateway, and we would color together or something while we're listening. And I remember we got to Judges, and I warned him, this is going to get really yucky. Like, this is an awful story. Um, but it's supposed to be awful. We we are supposed to see how awful this is. Yeah, we're supposed to get not, to the end of it and just think, oh. Yeah, yeah. This is not God saying this is all okay, no problem. We're supposed to see how terribly they've strayed from the covenant at Sinai. And I remember reading through those, you know, listening through those chapters, and Easton just said, yuck, what are they thinking? Which is exactly the response we're, we as readers are supposed to have. Hmm. Yes, our kids teach us maybe some of the responses that we filtered out. Um, And and then how, um, so he enjoyed the Levitical laws about sacrifice. What what was it about those that captivated him? Yeah, he was just in in school. They were learning about procedural texts and they were practicing writing procedural texts. So like, give, you know, how would you give instructions for doing something and sort of breaking things down step by step. So if you want to, if you want to watch a video on the computer, what do you do? Step one, you turn it on. Step two, you you open your browser. Step three, you type in these words, you know. So he was learning how to break things down step by step. And Leviticus is a procedural text. And so we watched the video and with from the Bible Project and then dove right in. And what I found was his... You could just see his wheels turning as he listened, like there's a whole organized system here. And he wanted to see the system like your son trying to figure out what gets people in trouble. He wants to know, like, how do you get out of trouble? Like, how? what are all the steps of making things right? And he was no one had told him that it was supposed to be boring. So he was fascinated. That's great. Um, I want to switch gears real quick before we wrap this up um, about the covenant, the concept of covenant. So um, I guess a big question when thinking about continuity and discontinuity from the old to the new is the idea of a new covenant. And how do you understand the newness of that covenant related relating to the old covenant? So you could look at that and think hard and fast line, you know, you've got just God scrapped the previous project, started something new completely. Yeah, this is how most people think of the new covenant. And so when they read Jeremiah chapter 31, 
uh, and and he and he says, you know, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. And they they immediately think, okay, great, that's over. Sinai's done. We're moving on. There's going to be something better in our future. But if we read really closely and carefully, I think we'll find that the we need to drill down to what are the reasons that it's not like the covenant that was made with the ancestors. And if we keep reading, it says, um, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. So it will not be like that one. You're not going to fail this time. So that's the defining difference. It's not that the covenant is a different covenant. It's that you are going to be people who are renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you're empowered to live faithfully to the covenant. So it's not that those laws were bad laws. They were good laws. Um, and and it now the difference is that law will be written on their minds and, and on their hearts. And, and they'll all know the Lord. And so the covenant hasn't changed. It's the same partners, the same law. The difference is that it's been internalized. Yeah. Yeah. And even even that concept of internalization is what they were supposed to do anyway. You know, these things are supposed to be upon your heart. And and Moses says in Deuteronomy 30 that these, um, these are near to you. They're in your mouth and in your heart so you can obey them. So, yeah, the, uh, there's a, a high degree of continuity, but I like that idea of the difference being, well, you won't break this one. Yeah. And and some people think, oh, the difference in the new covenant is that there's a way of being forgiven. Like, well, go back and read the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Read those sacrificial laws we like to skim over. Again and again, the refrain is, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven, and they will be forgiven. And if you, God has already in the first covenant at Sinai made a way for forgiveness. So that's not the new thing. I I like to think of the new covenant as being new, uh, the way that the prophet says Yahweh's mercies are new every morning in Lamentations chapter 3. It's the same word new. And and you wouldn't argue that Yahweh's mercies are are radically different every day than they were from the previous day. They're renewed. So I I like to call the new covenant the renewed covenant. Right. Um, if you had to kind of summarize, what's one big idea that you want people to take from your book that uh, you know that if someone's preaching on the Old Testament or. Uh, leading a Bible study, or just trying to make sense of it, what's the kind of big idea that you want people to walk away with? Hmm. We can't afford to ignore the Old Testament, because that's where God reveals to us who He is and who we are, and, and what we're here for, what our purpose is in the world. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. I really enjoyed yeah. the conversation. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.